This is In the Word with Malcolm Weber. The entire heavenly hierarchy, all the good spiritual authorities as well as the evil spiritual authorities, all of them are in submission to Him. You talk about glory, that is glory in the absolute. Welcome to In the Word with Malcolm Weber. As followers of Christ, everything about us is to be completely different from the pagan world that surrounds us. We are to be alert. We are to love each other deeply. We are to serve out of our connection to Jesus Christ. Let's dive deeper with Dr. Weber in the first part of his message on 1 Peter 3, 21 through 4, 11. Let's pick up where we left off last week. We're in a section in 1 Peter where Peter is dealing with Christians and our response to persecution in this particular section. And Peter uses the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that we should imitate him. And specifically how he uses Jesus' example is that the Lord Jesus was perfect, he was righteous, and yet he suffered. And because he suffered, therefore, he is now blessed and he's glorified. And in the same way, we as believers must be prepared to suffer when it is God's will for us to do so, in spite of the fact that we're righteous. And when we do that, when we submit ourselves to God in our sufferings, then on the other side of those sufferings, like the Lord Jesus did, we too will find glorification and blessing. Let's start reading in verse 17 of chapter 3. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built." In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. We dealt with these verses last week, and we're not going to go over them again. But we want to pick up now in verse 21. And this water, that is the water of the flood of Noah, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So Peter moves from the few who were saved through water in the time of Noah and the judgment of God that came upon the world in his days. Only eight people were saved out of the whole world. And those eight people, he says, were saved through water. The water, as it were, the same water that destroyed all of humanity upon the earth also lifted up the ark. And so in a sense, Peter says that the water saved them. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. In other words, the waters of Noah, in the flood of Noah, that was a type, that was a picture, that was a spiritual picture, it was a symbol of baptism. He said that the flood of Noah actually symbolized water baptism. And he says baptism now saves you. Obviously, baptism itself is not what literally saves us. 
but water baptism signifies the passing through of death and resurrection, united with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what saves us, us being united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And then he proves that in the next statement, that it's not the actual waters of baptism that save you. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying that it's not just a physical washing that saves you, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God is what is actually the arena of your salvation. Notice here he says, in describing baptism, he speaks of it as the removal of dirt from the body. So what kind of baptism did Peter and the early church practice? Sprinkling? Full immersion. See, I mean, it's right here. Again, this is the way that we can establish New Testament doctrine by looking at various ways in which the writers of the Gospels and the letters speak about things. Even in passing, we see here that there's the washing of dirt from the body. It's what happens in baptism. So obviously it's not just a sprinkling, but it's a full immersion. But he says, what saves you is not the removal of dirt from the body. So it's not the washing of baptism, the literal water that saves you. But it is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So after the believer has been born again and our sins have been removed, have been washed from us, it's the pledge of a good conscience. Our conscience, our heart has been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and born again. And then as a result of that new birth, as a result of our inward salvation, therefore we have the pledge of that good conscience. And the Greek word for pledge means to question or an inquiry. And so it's the sense of the Christian is seeking after God. Because of our clean, good conscience, that results in our seeking after God, which is then expressed in the obedience of water baptism. Okay? See how he ties all of this together? Peter says that Paul said some things that were hard to be understood, but Peter himself was guilty of that as well, I think, on a number of occasions. He just packs so much in here, and you've got to really pull it all apart to see what he's saying and how it fits together. So it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. That's what saves you. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is further evidence that Peter's not saying that you're saved literally by water baptism, but it's through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' death and resurrection as you receive that by faith that saves you. Notice also that he could have said by the death of Jesus Christ, couldn't he? But he said by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's another passage as we've already seen where Peter ties together Jesus' death and his resurrection as inseparable parts of his saving work on our part. Verse 22, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus has gone into heaven. When did he do this? What's he speaking about here? At what time did this happen? When did Jesus go into heaven? His ascension. Yeah, he's speaking about his ascension here. He's not talking about when he died upon the cross and went to heaven at that point, which he did, but he's referring here to Jesus' bodily ascension into heaven. You see, he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. You see, he sat down at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Look at this. Angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The entire heavenly hierarchy 
all the good spiritual authorities as well as the evil spiritual authorities. All of them are in submission to him. You talk about glory. That is glory in the absolute, ultimate glory. See what he's saying? And Peter's point in this is not only expressing his glory, which is point and up in itself, right? You don't need any other point than that, but nevertheless, he's also saying Jesus suffered, but then the glory. In the same way, you endure your sufferings now, even though you're righteous, just like he was righteous, endure your sufferings now, and on the other side, you too will experience the glory of God. So, angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. Jesus suffered, he died, but the result of that was glorious. And so as you are united with him, as you follow in his footsteps, and you suffer as well, then the result of your sufferings will be glorious too. Praise God. Now, when he says angels, authorities, and powers, and there are other passages in the New Testament where you have this same sort of breakdown of authorities, I personally don't believe that he's speaking there to give us a detailed and precise description of all of the various ranks of those authorities. I also believe that the four kinds of authorities that he speaks of in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul does a similar thing there, you know, I think he's just expressing the entirety of angelic authorities and powers, both righteous and evil. He's not so much giving us an exact precise breakdown. Personally, I think that the whole spiritual realm is far more complicated and complex than we would be capable of understanding. You know, you've got certain areas in what is called spiritual warfare teaching and so forth that can get into some very precise detailed things, and I think so often they're not biblical. The scriptures give us broad general revelations regarding the spiritual realm, and we will see I think why that is when we actually get on the other side and experience it, we see how extraordinary and incredible and vast it really is. It's not something that our little earthly pea brains are going to find easy to grasp. Speaking of pea brains, <laughs> mine is what I'm referring to there. Uh, now, angels, authorities, and powers are. <laughs> Try something else. Is that because I'm knocking it off or is this thing just falling by itself? <laughs> All right, let's give this one a try. Angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, you remember when Jesus said in Matthew 28, as he went back up to heaven, and he said, All power on heaven and earth is given to me, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, Peter is saying a similar thing here, that at the time of Jesus' ascension, that the angels, authorities, and powers are made in submission to him. So what does that mean? Does that mean, for example, that Jesus had to get that authority back from the devil? That is a way that it's frequently interpreted, that God had lost a certain measure of authority in the world. You know, God gave authority in the world to Adam. Adam then gave it to the devil, and so Jesus had to go and defeat the devil, you know, beat him up. If we had time, Neil and I would show you how that happened. <laughs> I wish we did, but we don't. So, then Jesus had to sort of beat him up to get that authority back. And so now we have angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. You see what I'm saying? That's the view. It's a wrong view. What this means in reality, in truth, is Jesus, before he came to the earth, he was Lord and always was Lord, of course, but before he came, he was exalted in glory. He was in heaven on the throne of God. When he came to the earth for a season, he emptied himself 
Paul says in Philippians 2, Paul doesn't say this, but he meant this. He emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine glory and of some of his divine attributes. He always had the glory and the authority and the attributes because he always was God. But he came down and he became, as man, he emptied himself of the independent exercise of that. So in other words, he was always dependent upon his father to show him things, things that he didn't know. And as the father gave him power, he would minister. As the father gave him knowledge, he would speak and so forth. You see? After his death and resurrection, then he was restored to his pre-incarnate glory and authority. Do you understand? And so that's what it means. It doesn't mean that he had to get it back from the devil. Oh, I'm so tempted, bro. I'm just to, to demonstrate how that you know, would have happened. If, but of course it didn't happen. Uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus had to get that authority back from the devil. God always had that authority. Satan has always been on God's leash. But Jesus, in his humanity, had emptied himself for a period of time of the independent exercise of certain of his divine attributes and his glory and his authority, and so that was restored to him. That's what he meant by all power is given to me in heaven and earth. That's what Peter means here, that angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. Does that make sense? You see that? It's a very important distinction. If you don't understand that, you'll have Satan actually being in charge of the world for a period of time. And Jesus having to fight with him. It's a whole perversion of the nature of the atonement. Jesus didn't die on the cross to redeem you from Satan's power. No, he didn't. His death did redeem you from Satan's power, but that was not his purpose. His purpose was to pay the penalty for your sin. Because he paid the penalty for your sin, therefore he has redeemed you from Satan's power. But salvation in the ultimate sense has nothing to do with the devil. Our salvation, our redemption through Jesus' blood ultimately has nothing to do with the devil. It has everything to do with God. We had offended God's holiness through our sin. Jesus died to take away the wrath of God. It wasn't to deal with the devil. Now, it did deal with the devil as a byproduct of having taken care of the wrath of God. Okay, Therefore, we are redeemed from Satan's power. So it's a very real redemption from Satan. But the point of the atonement, the heart of the atonement, was in the dealing with God's justice. And that is the thing that that whole other teaching concerning the atonement perverts. And so you end up with a completely perverted, twisted view of justice, of holiness, of redemption, of Jesus' death. So it's very important that we understand that. Let's move on now to chapter 4. And on the basis of Jesus' example of his sufferings and death, Peter then exhorts us to live in a manner that is separate from this world. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Christ suffered in his body. So how did Jesus die? Physically, right. He died in his body. Excellent. His physical death paid the penalty for our sins. Now, since Christ suffered in his body, therefore, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. The attitude there was that Jesus was willing to suffer in submission to the will of his Father. Correct? Is that what Jesus' attitude was? That's what his attitude was. He was submitted to his Father to the point of being willing to suffer, suffer horrible sufferings, ultimately to die. 
That's the attitude that he's speaking of there. And he's saying that you also should have that same attitude. You should be willing to suffer in the flesh. You should be willing to suffer physically in submission to God if God deems it necessary for you to do so. Okay, But from your side, you should be willing. You should have this attitude. And he says, arm yourself with this attitude. And it means to put on as armor. This attitude will be armor. It will protect you. It will strengthen you. It will allow you to get through the trials of life and the sufferings and the, at times, contradictions that God allows to happen to you when you're righteous and yet you suffer. This will arm you against failing in those times. It'll defend you. Okay, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because... He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. All right, this is one of those difficult little statements here. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What Peter is saying is he's bringing together several thoughts here and he's packing them into a short statement. So essentially, he's saying that the person, the believer, who has surrendered his life to God that you've truly surrendered your life in submission to God to the extent of willing to suffer in the flesh for righteousness, to that proportion you have got rid of sin. You're done with sin. You see, he's bringing a parallel here between submission to suffering and victory over sin. Right? Victory over sin was transformation of character. So he's bringing a parallel here between your willingness to suffer in submission to God and the reality of that submission to God and the transformation of character in you that has happened. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Great. Several of you <laughs> feel that that makes sense. You see, if you're a Roman Catholic, you might look at this verse and say, Aha! This is why I need to beat myself with a whip, you know, like the monks would do, in self-mortification, so that that will make me holy. Okay? Can you see how they would think this just from the bare reading of the text? He who has suffered in his flesh is done with sin. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that as you are submitted to God, genuinely submitted to God, your life has been so transformed by the power of his spirit that you are willing to suffer in the body. You're willing to suffer and die like Jesus did for him. You see? See the relationship there between willingness to suffer and transformation of character. So he that's suffering in the flesh is done with sin. To the extent that you are submitted to God to the point of being willing to suffer physical pain for him, to that extent you're done with sin. You see? There's the connection of sufferings, willing submission to God and transformation of character. Does that make sense? Yes? Great. Thank you. He's not promoting self-mortification. You know, that's self-mortification, you know, self-flagellation, when you whip yourself and you beat yourself on the head with a, show us how, bro. You know, you kind of bang your head against the wall and, you know, until blood comes out. No, don't show us. <laughs> as a result, verse 2, as a result of this transformation of character, uh, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, 
but rather he lives for the will of God. Evil human desires. See, these are fallen human desires are the desires that are wrong. Not all human desires are necessarily evil. So you're no longer living the rest of your life pursuing evil human desires, but rather you're living for the will of God. These are the two opposing ways of life that we must choose between. We're either going to follow our own evil human desires or we're going to live to fulfill the will of God. Four, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. The tense in the Greek there implies, he says you've spent enough time in the past and the idea is that that is done, it's finished, that section of your life is closed. It's done. It's not something that you should be still one foot in and one foot out of it today, but that's a previous part of your life that's back then. That chapter in your life is finished and it's closed. That, that's what he's saying here. That you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. He means the unbelievers there. It's literally the nations or the Gentiles. And he means unbelievers as opposed to Christians. They choose to do this stuff. Man is sinful by nature as well as by choice. They choose these things. But you are no longer involved in them because your character is being transformed. And then he lists six forms of fleshly sin that the pagans do. They live in debauchery, that means excess of all kinds, possibly sins of uncleanness, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, that means, you know, carousing is drinking parties and so forth, and detestable idolatry. Idolatry. That's what they do. That's what you used to do. But that's a time in your life that is past. That's a chapter that is closed. Don't open it back up again. Leave it in the past. Leave it closed. Live your life now to the will of God instead of these evil human desires. Verse 4, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. They are who? The pagans. They think it's strange because the reason they think it's strange is because you used to live like they do, right? I mean, you said that you used to. These are your former drinking buddies, your former potheads, your former whatever. <laughs> the people you used to hang around the crack houses with and get drunk with and, you know, your former gutter liars. You know, those who lie in the gutters. <laughs> Did you ever lie in a gutter? Ever hear a lay in a gutter? If I have lain in a gutter, it was a long time ago. Literally did it. So you used to do it, but now you don't anymore. You're changed. And so they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them. But look at these great words here. I mean, the way he describes this, that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And so they heap abuse on you. It's all of this excess Great language here. That you do not plunge with them into the same flood. It's, the Greek is literally the pouring forth. The same pouring forth. This is the lives of the pagans, of the unbelievers, of the lost. It's just this pouring forth of dissipation, of wastefulness. You know what dissipation is? It means wastefulness. And they pour forth wastefulness. It's not just a little bit, but their lives are just sin and Filth 
and self-indulgence and selfishness and all of the drunkenness and all of the stuff that they do. It's this pouring forth of wastefulness is how God describes it. Hollywood may glamorize it and make it seem all glitzy and shining and wonderful, but God calls it a pouring forth of wastefulness. Just wastefulness. The things that the world highly esteems. Lives of the gamblers and the wealthy celebrities that are living this fast life in the fast lane with all of the glitz and the money and spending it all on themselves and big cars and luxurious this and that. And it's a pouring forth of wastefulness. Wow, that's how God views it. And so they heap abuse on you because they think it's strange. Therefore, they come against you and they slander you. But they will have to give an account. Whoa. They're slandering you now. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, they have judged you as wrong. Right? That's why they slander you. They say, what's the matter with you? You don't come drinking. You're not smoking the weed, man, like you used to do. And you're not partying with us and that, that. And see, they're judging you as wrong. They're saying you're the one that's wrong. There's something wrong with you. But in the last day, God is going to judge them. God will have the last word. Wow. And when he does, my, my, we want to be on the right side of that last word. Do we not? Because every one of us, is going to be judged by him in the last day. This is what he says. Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge everybody. He's going to judge him. Judge us all once and for all. It's going to be a judgment, a final judgment. The living and the dead. Ooh. He says that they will have to give an account to him. You know what they're going to have to give an account of? Obviously of their entire life, but in this context... They're abuse of you, exactly. They're slander of you. They're judging of you. They're going to have to give an account for that one day. Wow. Those people that are slandering you right now because of the way you're living your life righteously and you won't go with them when they party and sin, and so they slander you and speak evil of you, they will have to answer to God for that one day. They actually will. That's what he says. Oof. They'll give an account of their abuse to him who is ready. Look at that. Him who is ready. To judge the living and the dead. God is ready. He's not going to back off and decide, well, you know, I've changed my mind. Maybe, you know, maybe it would be more loving of me and more politically correct if I wouldn't be so judgmental against sin. <laughs> Ain't going to happen, guys. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And also it implies that it's near. Close. He's ready. I mean, he's just about ready to do it. And if he was ready to do it almost 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this, you know he's even readier to do it now. See, these are the times in which we live. These are serious times. These are times in which we need to be separate from sin, enduring in our faith to God, walking with the Lord in spite of the sufferings that happen to us faithful to him. This is what Peter's encouraging us here, to walk with the Lord, hold fast, be faithful. We're so glad you joined us for In the Word with Malcolm Weber, a weekly podcast featuring selected teachings from Dr. Weber's over 40 years of ministry. Find more teachings along with books, courses, tools, and other resources from Dr. Weber 
at www.leadersource.org. Tune in next week for the second part of this message.